As we mentioned earlier, we're going to be continuing with our first Sunday Psalm series as we continue, and we'll be in the 31st Psalm today. Uh, We're going to be breaking up Psalm 31 into two different messages, uh, lest we wish to be here um, all afternoon. So we'll be breaking this up into two uh, different sections. So let's hear from God's Word from Psalm 31. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge to me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the streets flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, all praise and glory is unto you. You, the Creator God, who has 
condescended to us, that has reached down to us and revealed yourself to us in human words. Human words that are able to be translated into a language we can understand. And we thank you for this, your revelation, your words to us. And we pray, our Father, we would receive that which we have read as your word. Receive it, believing it. And we pray, our Father, that you would reveal to us afresh your truth in our hearts from your word. We pray that you'd reveal in our hearts afresh our Lord Jesus Christ, whom all the prophets, whom all the law and all the writings testify. Father, we pray that you would strengthen and increase our faith through your word, by your spirit. And we pray, our Father, that you would guide this preacher, that you would chain him to your word, that he might freely declare that which is true, to do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of different psalms that we've been through, uh, we have seen the psalmist go through a cycle, a cycle that goes from anguish or distress or difficulty or desperation or despondency and going to a sense of assurance and joyfulness and trust. And this psalm is no exception. This psalm is a combination of lament and complaint to the Lord, not complaint in the sense of the way Israel complained, of wanting to go back to what they were before, but complaint in saying, I am troubled, Lord, help me. And of trouble to one of expression of trust, one of jubilation in the Lord our God. This psalm is unique in that it goes from anguish to assurance twice. Verses 1 through 8 and again in verses 9 through 23, he begins with anguish, with his anguish and then goes to assurance and then goes back to his anguish and then returns to his assurance in hope in the Lord God, the covenant God of Israel. And so that's how we're going to be breaking up this psalm. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 and then we'll be dealing with verses uh, 9 through 24 in subsequent message, in subsequent sermon or sermons. In verses 1 through 8, speak of this anguish assurance cycle in general terms, kind of as a summary. And verses 9 through 23 speak of that cycle, and it may very well be the very same cycle, we don't know, but with greater focus, with more detail, with specific things of which the psalmist is anguished by as well as the language of his assurance that he has from God because of how God has revealed himself. This psalm, sections of this psalm, are quoted verbatim by both the prophets Jeremiah and Jonah. Jeremiah quotes verse 13, and we'll talk about that when we get there. And Jonah quotes verse 6, which we'll actually look at today, I believe. But he, Jonah quotes verse 6.
Verse 5 as well is quoted verbatim in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, verse 46, when Jesus said right before he died, Into your hands I commit my spirit. In verse 5 of the psalm, we hear that, Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's quoted verbatim by Jesus. Verse 5 is also alluded to in 1 Peter 4, verse 19. And we'll touch on that later. But it's alluded to. It has very similar language of that. And this psalm, it speaks of David's anguish over some sort of trial. Or maybe a representation of his difficulties and persecution. We don't know the particular instances, but they are there. And we will also be looking at it from how it speaks to our difficulties and our anguishes and where we find our assurance in God, in Christ. And yet this psalm also, being appropriated by Christ upon the cross, speaks also of Christ, which we will be looking at. Very important when we approach Scripture, wherever it is located, that we never leave one question, a particular question, unasked. We must ask them all, but this one is of vital importance that we'd never leave it unasked. And that question is, how does our Lord Jesus Christ relate to this passage? And how does this passage relate to our Lord Jesus Christ? So we see, first of all, in the first several verses of the passage, we see that there's a cry for help. We see the psalmist speaking of his anguish speaking of his difficulty, speaking of his pain. That's in verses 1, one through 5. You see in verses 1 and 2, the first part of that cry, which he says, In you, O Lord, I do take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. David has many things of which he's concerned, which you can read verses fourteen through the end of the pas- th- uh, verses nine through the end of the passage, the psalm, and you can see those in greater detail, which we'll speak of next time we're in the psalm. As I mentioned, we don't know the particular in- reason, but he starts his cry not with a complaint, but with a statement of assurance in the midst of his anguish. In his anguish, he begins with the knowledge of where his safety and where his help and where his refuge is. He says, in you, O Lord, I take refuge. When we hear refuge, what is it that we hear? Hear this idea of refuge. It has the idea of protection. It has the idea of a place of safety. It has the idea of salvation. Many places in the world, among many peoples in the world that have had no exposure to Christianity, they have had a a sense of refuge. In one particular book on uh, looking at different peoples of the world, particularly tribal peoples in remote areas of the world, tells the story of how particular tribes have in their village a place of refuge. 
and say another village attacks another uh, that, that village, and an enemy finds himself and the one of the attackers finds himself surrounded and his life threatened. If he can make it into that village's place of refuge, the village he's invading, he's safe because that is a place of safety, a sacred place, a place where he is protected and takes refuge. We call those redemptive analogies when we look at human activities and human practices all throughout humanity. We see these pictures of a place of somehow there's salvation somewhere outside of themselves. Just because of our fallen estate, because of our blindness, we don't get it right apart from the clear revelation of scriptures. And thus, we miss it. Another example of refuge is when people would seek refuge or asylum from trouble in their own home in another place. Such as when people might, in a war-torn country or a country taken over by crime and, and warlords and such, or crime lords, they would go to another country to seek refuge or asylum, to seek safety. The Mosaic Covenant, Israel, was to be, at least in part, one of, their, one of their things they were called to was to be a refuge for the stranger and the foreigner, for the widow and for the orphan. It's an analogy of, which is an analogy of God being a refuge for the weak and weary, which is reality every single human who's ever walked the face of the earth. It just some people are aware of it and others not. It shows that men and women, humans, we are not as strong as we think we are because we need refuge. We need protection. We need someone else to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We are setting ourselves up for a world of hurt if we think we can do it it on our own and with our help. And so David immediately turns to the Lord and says, in my trouble, he's saying, I take refuge. He says, never let, let me be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. He's asking for his ear, God's ear to be inclined to him. That is, hear my cry. He uses this picturesque language in all these, what we call metaphors. Maybe it might have been a long time since we've uh, been in uh, grammar school and don't remember exactly what a metaphor is. A metaphor is simply a way of describing something with something else. All throughout the scripture we have language of God being God speaking of himself in metaphorical terms. For example, incline your ear. That's a metaphor. Because God does not have a body and he does not have ears. That's speaking metaphorically of God. That is answer me do according do as i'm asking you in accordance with your will or when the lord reveals refers uh, to himself as though he were um, a hen protecting its chickens its chicks it's a metaphor and he wishes for speedy rescue he looks at his situation and he sees that uh, he's looking at the potential of being put to shame. 
And he wishes to be rescued from that. And his cry is bound up and be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. He's asking God to be all these things for him in his trouble and in his distress. He's asking a lot from God. He is speaking to God with confidence and making quite a few requests of him. How is it that David could presume to ask of God such things? How is it you and I could presume to ask God to do to deliver us? Let's keep that in the back of our mind. We're going to get there. We see, first of all, he's asking God, one of the things he says, he says, God, ask God to deliver him in accordance with his own righteousness. That is, for God to do justly. In a, particu- a particular temporal circumstance, we can ask, he's asking God in this particular circumstance to judge the situation with justice in regards to the one who is innocent of a particular offense of which he may have been accused. For if one is innocent of an offense for which they've been accused, and they are then uh, convicted of that and suffer the, uh, suffer the pain of that, an injustice has occurred. He's asking God to do justice, and to do right. And of the things of which he's been accused, and David many times has been accused of many things through his life, he was innocent. Though he was not always innocent, which we know. He was particularly conniving in some situations. But universally, that is beyond a particular temporal circumstance, none of us in and of ourselves have a leg to stand on to ask, when in asking God to judge according to his righteousness. Because it would require fitness for deliverance on the part of the one who is asking to be rescued. And so asking God to deliver according to his righteousness is also a cry for mercy. Remember in our Hebrew series, the high priest, in chapter 5 we learned, had to offer sacrifices annually in the Holy of Holies on behalf of himself and on behalf of God's people. He could not simply present a sacrifice without his own sin being atoned for because he was a sinner. We learned last week that there was often anticipation for the priest to come out of the Holy of Holies and to return because it meant his sacrifice had been accepted. But that priest, the sacrifice was also for himself because like everyone else, he was beset with the weakness of sin. Hebrews 5, 1-3 says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. But there was, there was, there is a high priest who's a different order, whose prayers were heard and whose sacrifice was received 
not on account of another sacrifice being offered, but on account of his own reverence. And this high priest is our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, 7-9 In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. For you see, we have a leg to stand on if we're asking God to do justice in a particular situation of which we ourselves might be innocent of. But when it comes to anything outside of that, we have no leg to stand on because we are like that high priest. And we are full of sin. And we are full of unrighteousness. And if we ask God to do what is just, universally and overall, we are asking him to condemn us. But there is one who is condemned on our behalf. R.C. Sproul tells of a story of in his classroom, in the seminary, he had a paper that was, there was a paper that was due. And the rule was, it's on time or it's a zero. If it's not on time, you get zero credit for it. And so, of course, several students, they didn't turn the paper in on time. And they asked for mercy. Would you give us more time? This happened and this happened and that happened. I've heard those many times. And oftentimes those things do happen. And so he was merciful and said, turn it in by next class and you'll, and you'll get credit minus a few points. And so next paper came due. The same group of people had the same problem. And so the same thing happened and he gave them another class period to turn it in. Happened another time in the semester. Of course, here I think it's quarters. but It happened another time in the semester. And once again, he showed mercy. It came to the final paper, the one by which one would truly pass or fail the class. And they were late yet again. And he said, nope. There is no, there, there is no, not on this one. Must be in on time. And you know what they said? They said, that's not fair. And so Dr. Sproul, being Dr. Sproul, said, oh, you want fair. So he went to all those other papers that have been turned in late and crossed out the grade he had given them and given them zeros. See, what's fair is that we suffer eternal condemnation. But David is appealing here on the basis, he's also appealing on the basis of mercy. For later, he says, be merciful to me. Augustine, you may know him as Augustine. There's debate in Latin as to whether you pronounce it Augustine or Augustine. I say Augustine. Says of this, this verse, judge me according to your righteousness. He says, there is a justice that belongs to God, but becomes ours as well when it is given to us. It is called God's justice to ensure that humans do not imagine that they have any justice from themselves. Furthermore, he continues that we assume that we are able to assume perfection by our own efforts. That is, we often assume that. The reason we don't recognize God's grace was that we don't want to be saved by what he calls gratis, which is free. He continues and says, For who is saved gratis? Everyone in whom the Savior has found nothing to crown, 
but only what he must condemn. One in whom he has found nothing but deserves reward, nothing that deserves rewards, but only what merits torments. Why call it grace? Because it is given gratis. And why is it given gratis? Because there were no preceding merits on your part. And so thus we say with David, in you, O Lord, have I put, put in my trust, not in myself, which comes later in, the, in Psalm 31. You see, the very fact that David is appealing to God indicates he's aware that he has nothing to offer in and of himself. The fact that he's appealing to God says, I need someone to, say, to rescue me, and I don't have it within me. As we read earlier, we see Christ who cried out and was heard on account of his own reverence. Our Lord found himself in accordance with his humanity, suffering the difficulties, the pangs of human existence, the pains of betrayal. He alone suffered the most unjust of all unjust betrayals and acts. If we can think of the most unjust thing we can think of, what happened to Jesus was far more unjust. But it was because he who had no sin suffered the, suffered that which is due to sinners. Yet he, was, yet he was heard on account of his own righteousness. And because Jesus did this, we can go to God through Christ and say with the same confidence of David, be my refuge, be my rock, be my rescuer. Rescue me according to your righteousness. For all of Christ is ours. For as Augustine says, we have nothing that deserves rewards, only that which merits torments. So thus, it is through Christ we say to God, rescue me according to your righteousness. Another person in the early church, Cassiodorus. He was in the fifth century. 5th and 6th centuries, that's the, uh, <clears throat> that's the 4 and 500s. He said with regards to this cry, Christ is the greater David in verse 2. He rightly made an appeal for the Lord's justice, since he knew he would suffer at the hands of the unjust. What a truly amazing and divine exchange. He received death and gave salvation in return. He endured injuries and distributed honors. He took upon himself pain and, and conferred safety. He is both unique and fully devoted who offered sweet things when he received what was bitter. Do we hear how this early, this early church father was reading the psalm as the words of Christ? In early centuries of Christianity, this was very common the way the Hebrew scriptures were read. It was only in reaction to the deviances of theologians of the modern era, starting from the mid-1700s into the early 1900s, that began departing from this way of reading of Scripture. You see, those modernists insisted that the Bible was but a product of human writing and should be read just like any other book without any sense of divine unity. That is, when we read something in the Bible, we should just read that part by itself and not think about the rest of the Bible. And their answer to what the Bible said is was a, it was a disjointed, disjointed series of, uh, from different authors that had nothing holding it together. 
Unfortunately, being the spirit of the age, the response from believers was to take the very same pattern of reading, that is, taking each thing all by itself and not referencing it to everything else, and to bundle it with belief that it, that it is divinely inspired. And we have long forgotten this old way of reading Scripture. It was a way of making, it was a way that believers said we can make Scripture palatable that is digestible to the people who approach it that way. But in verses, then we, but moving on in verses 3 through 5, we have the basis for the cry. The basis for the cry is rooted in who and what God is. In verses 3 through 5, out of his complaint, his desire to be rescued, out of his anguish, he begins by making what we might call a confession of faith of sorts, of stating what, who God is, of confessing to God, this is who you are, and restating what God has revealed himself to be. For he says, he went from moving, he started with be my, be my fortress, be my refuge, be my strength, be my deliverance. In verses 3 through 5, he says, for you are my rock and my fortress. You you lead me for your namesake. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me. You are my refuge. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. His appeal is based on what he knows of God and how God has revealed himself. He asks God for refuge because God has revealed himself as a refuge, as a rock, as a fortress, as the one who leads out of trouble, as the one who rescues his people, out of traps, as the one who redeems his people. All of this is because he is the Lord, the faithful God. In your text, you probably see Lord there in all caps at the end of verse 5. Oh, Lord, faithful God. That's referring to his name, Yahweh, which is the best way we know how to pronounce it to date. And that name, Yahweh, simply means I am. It is a putting together of the two sides of the statement that God made to Moses at the burning bush at Mount Sinai when he said, I am that I am. He took the I am and the I, take the I am and the I am and that that's in the middle and smush them together and you get uh, what we know as Yahweh. Simply, I am. And what is the I am that I am? God is always, he is the one who is all that he is always. He, the, the one who spoke to Abraham, the one who spoke in the garden, is still that one and he is still all that he is. And so he is faithful and true to himself and his perfect character. And so David can say, be my rock and my fortress because God has declared to those in covenant with him, you are my, he is their rock. He is their fortress. He is, has led them and he does lead them for his namesake. He speaks in present tense ideas. That is right now, this going on. This is who God is. This is what he does for his people. And so he's saying, do what you do. Do what you do. 
you might be saying. Put it in a little more contemporary lingo. Lord, I need you to do you. To do in accordance with who you are. All these different metaphors for who God for who God is and what He does. All of these things reflect His faithfulness. Things that He said He is and that He does for His people, in whom He is in friendly covenant with. All people are in covenant with God. There's the covenant that God made with us in, in the garden, which we failed. The covenant says, "Do this and live." Every human is born in that covenant. We fail to do that, and thus we don't live. Or there's the new covenant in Christ in which we are in. His gracious covenant in which he has promised by Christ to do good for us. Those who are in that covenant can be sure of this. God is our rock and our refuge. He is, leads us for his namesake. He does take us out of the net that has been hidden for us. He is our refuge. He has redeemed us. Now, we look at situations, we're going to touch on this a little bit later, and say, um, then why am I still in between a rock and a hard place if he does these things? We're going to touch on those in just a little bit. But one thing we can learn from this, it is absolutely necessary that we internalize the truths of God that he has made known about himself. Committing to memory, committing to our hearts, That's what God has said about himself. Repeating, and yes, reciting the truths of God. There's actually scriptural basis for that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. The Shema. It's called the Shema because it opens up with the Hebrew word Shema, which means listen. And he says here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. They're declaring this truth and memorizing and internalizing this truth. I would argue that we need to put as much effort into learning and memorizing the truths of God as we would put into learning and memorizing the multiplication table. learning and internalizing what the scriptures expressly lay out about God. That is what is expressly and explicitly stated. Internalizing what is necessarily necessarily there, though not explicitly stated. It's there by implication. And what is a good and necessary logical deduction of those two. We must internalize those. We must learn those. We must hold on to those. For it is from that we have our confidence. It is from that we can can cry this cry, knowing who God is. Knowing how He acts. 
knowing what he has said about other things. Now we go into verse 5. We have this statement. We've already referenced the second half earlier, but we're going to do that again. You've redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. In this first half, Jesus quotes this in his prayer shortly before he dies on the cross. When he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said earlier that this was also used as a pattern in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. When it comes to our own pursuit of that which is good and right in Christ Jesus. That is, for the Christian, in reality it's for everyone, but not everyone sees this to our own blindness. What is right and good is not determined by the results or consequences of an action. I'll repeat that again. What is right and good is not determined by the results or consequences of that action. What is right and good is right and good because God has said it is right and good. Because it is by its nature right and good. And we, from our place in Christ are to pursue that which is right and good. Yet such things may bring difficulty and pain. We often try to ask the question and to determine what's right and good by saying, what's going to result in the greatest number of, or the greatest benefit to the greatest number of people? That's the wrong question. The right question is, what's the right thing to do? But even though those things might bring suffering, Peter tells us this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That sounds a bit like, into into your hands I commit my spirit. Let us entrust ourselves to him. Jesus cited this verse in his dying prayer in, in Luke chapter 23. As we mentioned earlier. It says, Jesus, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Did did Jesus merely quote this? Or is there something of an element to this psalm that is pointing us to Jesus Christ? By mere conventional wisdom, since Jeremiah and Jonah both uh, used this psalm for their own circumstances, one could say that Jesus was just quoting the psalm. But we're also taking note that the author, Luke, of the gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose to include this uniquely to his gospel. We should take note of it. But also the hearers there at the foot of the cross who were well-versed in the Old Testament, though they didn't have the Bible to take home. They didn't have Bibles to take home, like we do. They were on scrolls. The Old Testament would have taken up probably the bulk of this room. But they heard it. And you could go to someone in such, in such a group, and you could say, what does is, what, what is the psalm, what, what, what is this psalm say? And they could actually recite it. But having all that to say this, the hearers would have been familiar with this psalm. And they would have heard that and would have meant something. 
We also need to understand the self-understanding of Jesus. That Jesus understood himself to be the Messiah. He understood himself to be in relationship with the Father as his Son. He knew also that he was fully divine. I should say is fully divine. The perfect union of the divine nature to the human nature and the person of Jesus Christ. So this would point to the legitimacy of reading this as referring to Jesus in the psalm. Meaning Jesus is once again revealed to us in the words of a psalm. Once again, that author I quoted earlier, Cassiodorus, he says, let us consider why these words have been placed here, which the gospel text quotes. Certainly so that you may recognize that here too he spoke with so many centuries later, would speak the same words when fixed on the cross into your hands by which you always perform what is kind and just. In this way he commends to the Father the, the inestimable, that's, uh, that means it cannot be counted, treasure, namely that soul that regularly carried out the Father's desires in complete compliance with the Father's intention. It was therefore fitting that such a spirit be commanded to such a great guardian. And then we see he testifies he was redeemed. We can see that Jesus commended to his father his soul, speaking as the greater David and taking this psalm and applying it to, as, applying it to himself as testifying of himself. Now, one might say that Jesus, he didn't say the second half in his prayer, you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So thus it's not applied to him. But Jesus was redeemed. He was not redeemed from sin, for he was never a sinner. But he was redeemed from death. He wasn't redeemed by avoiding the cross and death. He actually did die. He did suffer. He suffered severe pain according to his humanity. But this was a cry of confidence on his part because Jesus was fully aware that he would rise from the dead. For Jesus expected this. John chapter 2, 19, when Jesus was challenged by what, the author, uh, by, uh, by what authority he did the things that he did and the set, said the things that he said, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Now he wasn't speaking of the actual temple. Some of the hearers said, what? He destroy this temple and he's going to build this this thing that took years and years to make in three days the text shows that but then he says the text comments he was not speaking of the actual temple but of his own body another commentator says Jesus found encouragement in the psalm as he was dying on the cross at the climactic moment he uttered the words of verse 5 to express his absolute confidence in God's ability to rescue him. Of course, God did not rescue him from the cross and he died, but God's rescue came in the form of resurrection. And this psalm testifies that he was redeemed. But at what price was he redeemed? He was redeemed at this price. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. The great price which he paid 
but he brought his majesty as low as he brought his majesty and glory as low as us. And he emptied himself in order that he might fill human being things with heavenly things. Cassiodorus said that last statement. You see that Jesus died, cried this on the cross, was indeed redeemed by the Father, brings meaning to what was told to us in 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Why is it we are able to entrust our souls to God? Why is it that we can do so with confidence? Why is it that we can say, be our refuge? Well, because Jesus entrusted Jesus, Jesus entrusted his soul to the Father on our behalf in the midst of the most unjust thing that has ever occurred and will ever occur in the history of humanity. Because he rose from the dead, we can say with confidence, you have redeemed me. Because he rose from the dead, we also shall rise from the dead. Because he was emptied, we are filled. Because he humbled himself, we will be lifted up. Thus we can say, unto you I commit my spirit. It is Jesus' cry upon that cross and his redemption in the form of his resurrection that brings meaning to this for us. And then starting in verse 6, our apostle, uh, sorry, the psalmist moves now to his own assurance. He first of all makes a statement about idolatry. And he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Jonah quoted this in his argument with God about Nineveh. After he had come out of the belly of the fish, he said, I hate those who do idolatry. Why would you have me go and proclaim this to them that they might be rescued? You see, idolatry is the folly of follies. What is idolatry? Well, God's law tells us what it is. The first commandment, God's law opens up with who God is and that he alone is to be worshipped. No other God is to be bowed down before. It is he alone to whom we shall bow down and worship. Furthermore, in the second commandment, we see we are not free to think of him in according, according to our own imaginations when that second commandment prohibits us from making images and such. We, cannot, we, are not to, we are not to think of him according to our own imagination, but only according to how he has revealed himself. Anything else is worshiping another god. Israel, for the nation of Israel, the basis for their rebellion and the basis for their condemnation over and over and over again was idolatry. That's where it all started, was idolatry. For they bowed to the Baals and to the Asherahs. Those were two of the false gods that were worshipped by the peoples around them. Baal being the equivalent in Say the Greek, uh, say the Greek um, idolatrous system of Zeus. For even in the but Israel, even in their worship of Yahweh, they made their offerings with strange fire in strange places. They were not to worship at the high places; only where God had told them. 
the, that is the high places where Baal and Asherah were worshipped. Idolatry was actually the basis for our fall in the garden, for we wished to worship ourselves in Adam and Eve. That was the temptation that was laid out. So our psalmist says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. He has a holy despising of those who worship idols, especially in the company of Israel. It deeply grieves him. Even our Lord in his holiness would have despised such, but yet he loved us to die for us, idolaters. See, to look at idols is absolutely vain. It is in vain. That it is useless. There is no recourse or help from the Baals and the Asherahs, from any false god that we can imagine or invent or make. And we like to make idols. John Calvin says the human heart is a factory of idols. Take the human heart and it just turns out idols, 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 idols. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 18, speaks of idolatry. He says, All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit, that their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carper stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it and it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns with fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. And he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes, so they cannot see in their hearts, so they cannot understand. See, he's mocking idolatry there. With the very materials that one uses to make an idol, they also use to cook the food and warm themselves, and then you bow down before that. You take that which serves you and worship it. Other places in Isaiah, he says, oh, look, the idol needs to be fed, so they feed it. It needs to be carried. But then he says, but you, O Israel, I have carried, I have fed. Augustine says, if you put your trust in money, you are paying futile regard to vain things. If you put your trust in high office or some exalted rank in human government, You are paying futile regard to vain things. When you put your trust in all these, either you expire and leave them all behind, or they will crumble while you are still alive, and what you trust have trusted will have let you down. So it is folly to turn to false gods, 
be they statues, images, people, princes, money, or anything we could imagine and say, this is my God. And we make idols without even uttering those words when we turn to them more and with greater um, faith than we turn to our God. In verses 7 and 8, the psalmist rejoices in God's faithfulness. He concludes with a grand statement of assurance of God's steadfast love, faithfulness, and salvation, instead of in false gods and false conceptions of God. He says, But I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction and have known the distress of my soul. You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. See, the psalmist includes this grand statement of assurance. We've seen David in that circumstance many times. God delivered him. When he was betrayed by his son Absalom. Before that, when he was uh, exiled by Saul and being chased down. He says, you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. You see, the Lord sees and is aware of his circumstances and affliction. I've been going through version of the Heidelberg Catechism with a couple, with a, somebody and one of the things that is of our uh, first question says what is uh, what is our, my only comfort in life and in death and said I belong to I belong to my Lord Jesus Christ body and soul and one of the things in that answer it says and he and not a single hair falls from my head without his knowing David was seen by God in many an occasion and was delivered and set in a broad place. What is a broad place? I think it's best described by what's not a broad place. Think of a tightrope. Have you ever tried walking a tightrope? I actually have, but I was tied up to a harness and everything like that. It's one of the scariest things in my life. Even though I knew that harness would would 99.9% chance of keeping me from falling, that 0.01% had me scared. And I did fall. But that was not a broad place. A broad place is a place where we have sure footing and easily not going to fall off to the left or the right. Consider when driving. There's a beautiful bridge north of us. But that bridge is not a broad place. Deception Pass Bridge is not a broad place. That sidewalk is not a broad place. Now, we're twice as wide. That would be a broad place. Which one would have a greater safety? And so it's a broad place, being a place with good and sure footing, a place of easy standing. See, God is the rock. He refers to him as the rock earlier upon which he stands. And you see in Christ and his humanity, we have a Savior who has seen and been distressed as we are. And thus we have a testimony of God's saving work for us because he in his distress was heard and was not delivered into the hands of the enemy. No, he rose from the dead and was secretly disarming those powers of this age. He, being our mediator, was set in a broad place. Thus, in him, we are in a broad place and stand on a broad place. 
We have the testimony of God's faithfulness in Jesus to us. He will, we will not be delivered ultimately into the hands of the enemy, into the hands of our flesh, into the hands of suffering and persecution. But you say, why are believers being persecuted and suffering? Why is there still wickedness that runs throughout the whole world? Why am I still plagued by my own sin? You see, we live by an understanding of the cross. Our victory is ultimately not found in this age. We have bits and pieces of tastes of it. But we live life in light of the cross. For our victory is found in resurrection. This age, we need to understand things through the lens of the cross. Carl Truman says, Divine power is revealed in the weakness of the cross. For it is in this apparent defeat at the hands of evil powers and corrupt earthly authorities that Jesus shows his divine power in the conquest of death of all the powers of evil. So when a Christian talks about divine power or even about church or Christian power, it is to be conceived of in terms of the cross, power hidden in the form of weakness. You see, even in our suffering and difficulty, we are seeing our redemption. For we can learn this from the cross. The most blessed person to have ever lived, our Lord Jesus Christ, was revealed to be blessed in his suffering and in his death. Think of it this way. If God deals with the Son in that way, should we, who have been united to him, have any right to expect anything different in life? We think we're losing when we're suffering evil at the hands of haters of God. No, not at all. For that is all the supposed victory they get. We have something far more that is coming. Because Jesus rose from the dead, so shall we. And that, my brothers and sisters, is our broad place. So, brothers and sisters, in closing, in our anguish is great assurance because there is one who stands in our place, who rose from the dead, who lives for us, our greater David, who said, into, my, into your hands I commit my spirit and who has been redeemed through his resurrection. So we can be sure that our Lord God is our rock, our fortress, that he leads us, that he rescues us, that he's our refuge, and that we have our redemption in the redemption of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we are thankful for this great gift of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that in him we stand and in him is our broad place. And we pray, our Father, you'd reveal this to this more and more, that we would cast ourselves upon you, who is our rock and our refuge, who is our strength, who does lead us away from the net that is laid out for us. We pray you'd help us to put all things in perspective, in an eternal perspective. We pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.